if you put your Bibles away, be sure and bring them back out. And as we continue now to look at uh, Genesis chapter 7 together, uh, as we study the book. Let me get my stuff ready. Well, the Lord has um, spoken to me on many different occasions um, through His Word, through brothers and sisters in Christ, through His providences uh, in my life. Um, And there have been a few times, and you've probably experienced this as well if you've walked with the Lord for any uh, length of time, there have been times where God has spoken in a unique way of, of in, in a sense, impressing something upon your soul and, uh, and leading you in that way. But I have never had the privilege of the Lord speaking to me audibly. I have never, with my ears, heard God speak. Now, there are some of God's people throughout Christian history whom whom God has spoken to that way. We think of Moses and the Israelites at Mount Sinai hearing the booming voice of God and how the Israelites cried out to Moses, Moses, go up the mountain and speak to him. We don't want to hear his voice anymore. It scares us. Uh, So people throughout history have at different times heard an, an audible voice of God. We think about the baptism of Jesus or His transfiguration and how a voice from heaven spoke, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. uh, Throughout the days that Jesus walked the earth, we hear of occasions where people heard God the Father speak from heaven. And of course, any time Jesus opened His mouth, those around Him were hearing the words of God, the voice of God. Well, here in in verse 1 of chapter 7 of Genesis, the Lord again speaks to Noah. And we don't know how God spoke to Noah. Maybe it was a a booming, audible voice that that, that struck Noah's ears. We're, We're simply not told. But the words that God spoke here were words that were going to ultimately save Noah and his family. The world, as they knew it, was coming to an end, and only these eight people would be saved. Why Noah? Well, Noah was spared because of his righteousness, because he walked and talked with God and desired to please Him, because he was blameless in his generation, Noah was a believer, one who had been born again, one who had a new heart that that loved God. 2 Peter 2 verse 5 says this, listen. It says, God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, and seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Peter calls Noah a herald of righteousness. It may be that Noah himself was one who not only lived in godliness, but actually preached to others as well. Preached to the evil generation around him, calling them to repent. 
And certainly as Noah lived in obedience to God, in stark contrast to the rest of the world, he was salt and light. His, his very life and his actions were a sermon to the world around them in and of itself. Here's Noah building this gigantic boat in the middle of the desert while others probably mocked him, assumed that he had lost his marble, said he was one fry short of a Happy Meal. Yet Noah persevered. He did all that God commanded him. His faith, the fact that he trusted God, was shown in that when God spoke to him, he believed God and did what God told him to do, no matter what the world around him said. Here is a truth that you and I must learn. It is only those who are righteous by faith who will be permitted to see the new world. It is clear in these verses that Noah was spared because of his righteousness. Right? Verse 1, The Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. He was not perfect. He was not sinless. But he was righteous in God's eyes because he trusted in the Lord and had a new heart. Ultimately, the righteousness of Christ that would come many thousands of years later was already being applied to Noah. And Noah was growing and becoming spiritually mature. Those of us who believe, who want to see the new world, who want to enter the new heavens and the new earth, we need to know that our only hope of being saved is if we trust our God. If we hear His Word, if we believe His Word, if we show we believe His Word by obeying His Word. And that's key. We can't just make a profession of faith and yet show by our lives that that faith is not real. 1 John 2, 4-5 through is very clear. Listen to this. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar. The truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His Word, in Him truly the love of God is perfected. You see, we are saved by faith, not by works. But if you have true faith that faith will show itself in acts of obedience. If you trust Jesus, then you trust Him. If you, you need to show that trust by trusting Him enough to do what He says. Our community, our city, is in need of Christians who don't just profess faith, but actually trust their God enough that when they read in their Bible, care for orphans, care for widows, show mercy to the oppressed, if Christians would believe that word and say, God, you've given this to me because you care about me and you know what is right and best, and therefore I will do that. If Christians in our town did what the Bible says, our city would be a different city. Noah's profession of faith was that he did what the Lord commanded. And it ultimately saved him. Animals start appearing in this chapter. 
We've already heard how God was going to bring Noah one pair of each kind of beast, livestock, flying bird, and creeping thing. The only creature that was not brought to the ark were creatures of the sea, since they could survive in the water. The fact that the flying birds were brought into the ark is even more evidence that this was a global flood and not a localized event. Because if this had been just some regional localized flood, the birds simply could have flown to safety. And so it seems that this was a worldwide flood. But Noah was not only to bring one pair of each kind of animal onto the ark, but of certain animals, those called clean animals, he was to bring seven pairs. These are the animals that Noah and his family would later use for food and for sacrifice. And the fact that Noah, all the way back here in the beginning of Genesis, already knows certain animals to be called clean and certain animals to be called unclean shows that the law that was given to Moses and Israel in Exodus 20 didn't just come out of nowhere. But God had already revealed much to His people in the past of how He was to be worshipped and what He expected of them. These clean animals were to be used for sacrifice. These particular kinds of animals had been set apart by God as acceptable to Him. And all of these clean animals point to Christ. The once for all sacrifice who was holy harmless and undefiled, the spotless Lamb of God who was set apart to bear the punishment our sins deserved. Now, on a side note, I should point out that many see in this passage a reason to think that when you and I as Christians enter the new heavens and the new earth, we can expect there to be animals there. You ever wondered about that? You ever had questions? I wonder if there will be animals in the, the new heavens and the new earth. Well, here, Noah and his family are being preserved along with many animals so that once the old world has been washed clean by the flood and a new world is revealed, they can again repopulate the earth. And many scholars say that this is perhaps symbolic, a hint about what's in the future. Could it be? That similarly, once this world that we're living in is judged by the fire of God as described in 2 Peter 3, and once Jesus recreates this old world into a new heavens and a new earth where we will live forever, there will be animals in that future paradise just as there have been animals, well, in the first paradise, the Garden of Eden. And so many think that this perhaps speaks to the truth that there will be animals in heaven. Uh, Isaiah seems to speak this way. Isaiah 11, the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed the bear. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like an ox. Now, can I promise you that there will be animals in heaven? No, I can't. There is no one verse in the Bible that says there will be animals in heaven. But it does, I think, seem very likely. 
And just as man was given responsibility of, of caring for and ruling over the animals in the first paradise, Genesis 1 and 2, so in the future paradise, I have a feeling we will be given a similar mandate. Well, in verses 6 through 16, the flood begins. The people of the earth were not expecting this. Floodwaters came as a surprise. Mount Hermon, the floodwaters came as a surprise. When God's wonderful, merciful, merciful patience finally came to an end, His floodwaters of judgment came. And so also, we know that in our future is a day when God's wonderful, long-suffering patience towards this earth and towards mankind will come to an end, and Christ will come. And it will catch many by surprise. Remember what Jesus told us about His second coming? On that day, He's going to come with angels and with the saints who have gone before And we who are still alive will meet them in the air. And then God's judgment will be poured out on all who love wickedness and hate God. And when is that day going to come? Jesus said, but concerning the day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Listen. For as were the days of Noah so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking. They were marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. It's pretty sobering isn't it? If you won't listen to some 28-year-old wannabe preacher, listen to the best of all, Jonathan Edwards, when he preached on this. This is what he said to his listeners. He says, You have been warned once more today while the door of the ark yet stands open. You have, as it were, once again heard the knocks of the hammer and the axe in the building of the ark to put you in mind that a flood is approaching. Take heed, therefore, that you do not still stop your ears. Treat these warnings with a regardless heart and still neglect the great work which you have to do. Lest the flood of wrath suddenly come upon you and sweep you away and there be no remedy. Mount Hermon, do not stop up your ears. Hebrews 11.7 says that Noah, in reverent fear, constructed an ark and that by this he condemned the world. Because you say day, day after day and week after week and month after month and probably year after year, Noah was working on this ark. Perhaps his sons with him. Perhaps he had hired workers. We don't know. But working on this ark and others saw what was going on. Certainly this was talked about. Certainly people had heard Noah say that a flood is coming. And yet while the hammers were going and the saws were going and the axes were going, they continued to close their eyes and stop up their ears and not repent. 
Is that what you're doing today? Being warned yet again, and yet refusing to turn from your sin and trust Christ. Imagine Noah taking that last look around before he stepped into the ark and the door was closed. The next time that door would be opened, most of the people he knew would be dead. The world around him would be new and different. Certainly he must have had some grief for his fellow man, all those people who refused to be saved. Certainly he must have had some excitement in his heart about the new world. What would it look like when he stepped out? In many ways, Noah stepping into the ark and the door being shut is like us taking our final breath on this earth when we close our eyes and die. What will come next? When we take that final breath, there will probably be some in our lives today that we know who have refused Christ and we will never see them again. And that breaks our hearts. Like Noah, we should also have an eager expectation that when we take that final breath, we will step out into a new world, into an unknown, but something that is great and glorious, that we will pass through death into eternal life. When you think about your own death, can you think about it with a sincere joy? That you are going to step out of death into a new world because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. The rains began to fall. And this was probably the first time it had ever rained on the earth. Genesis 1, 6-8 talked about how when God created the world, there was this water above the firmament, water above the expanse. And there's a lot of debate about exactly what that means, but it's very possible that here at Noah's flood, we have waters both coming up from under the earth and also this water that has been above the firmament now being lit down and falling down upon the earth. The earth will never be the same. From this point forward, rain will be a part of the natural cycle of earth's weather. Without it, we die. And each and every rainstorm that we see should remind us of this day when the rains fell for the first time and the cataclysmic judgment against our sin. In verse 16, we're told that the Lord shut Noah in. He and his family were safe and secure in the ark for God sealed them in the ark so that no danger could reach them. What a joy to be shut in by God. We as Christians have taken refuge in Jesus Christ. He is our ark in whom we have protection from the judgment to come. And the Bible teaches that all who belong to Christ have been sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. Ephesians 4.30 says we were sealed for the day of redemption. In other words, if you are truly Christ, then you are being kept by the Spirit of Christ until the day He comes back to this earth and takes you to Himself forever. 
2 Corinthians 5.5 tells us that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a guarantee that we will one day put off these mortal bodies and we will put on life. I am a firm believer that once you are truly saved, you are saved forever. He who began this good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.6 Jesus said, John 10, All that the Father gives to me, I will not lose any of them. I will lose not one of them. God did not allow for Noah and his family to walk around on the edges of the ark and perhaps fall over and drown. No, He sealed them in. He shut them in. No danger will get to them. And if we are Christ, we are shut in to His grace. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives and we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Not maybe goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives. Surely, it is a sure thing If God's saving mercy has come and taken grasp of you, it will not let you go. Not, we might dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Hold that, church. You need those promises if you're going to live right tomorrow. If you're going to have joy on Monday, you need promises like that. If you are God's, then you are God's forever. So the question is this, are you God's? The key to once saved, always saved is the once saved. You've got to be that first. Now this passage also teaches us something about baptism. Have you been baptized? To be baptized is to be lowered into the water and then raised out of it again as a way of declaring that you belong to Christ. And Peter, when he is talking about baptism, makes a reference to Noah and the flood. Listen to 1 Peter 3, 20-21. God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought, safety, brought safely through the water. Now listen to what Peter draws from the story of Noah and the ark. He says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, we often talk about baptism as a picture of cleansing. And it is. It's, it's you're being washed, right? You've been washed by the blood of Christ. And so you go in the water and you're cleansed. And you come out and, and it symbolizes that you've been made clean. But there's another picture going on in baptism. Remember, through all of biblical history, water was a picture of judgment. And what this is showing in baptism is that you are going to, what? Well, think about Jesus. Think about Jesus in the book of Luke, where he talking about the judgment he was going to go through at the cross. And what's the word he uses to describe the judgment he would go through at the cross? He described it as his baptism. 
Luke 12, 50. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Jesus described His his going to the cross to bear the judgment for our sins as a baptism because He would go into the judgment of God. God's flood of wrath was poured out on Christ for your sins and my sins, for the sins of all who believe. And Jesus went through that flood of judgment and yet He rose again. He went through the judgment. He came out of the judgment by His resurrection from the dead. Similarly, When we have been united to Christ by faith, we are showing that though judgment day is coming and we will stand before God, we will be preserved and we will come through that judgment day and come out on the other side and see the new earth. Baptism is a picture of that. Noah and his family point to this. They experienced the flood coming down upon them. They experienced the judgment of God. And yet, unlike the rest of humanity, they are preserved. They are able to walk out of the ark and to live in a new world once judgment day is past. When Christians are baptized, we are declaring to God and to ourselves and to others that through Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, not through anything in me, not through anything I've done, but through Jesus Christ, I will be preserved through the day of judgment. And I will see the new earth. Folks, there was nothing cute about the flood. I can imagine people banging on the door of the ark, begging to be lit in as the water rose. I can see people and animals struggling to reach high ground to survive. But there was no ground high enough. I can see parents holding their infant babies above their heads as the water rose praying to their pagan gods that the children they loved would survive. Every human city, every human accomplishment washed away. The severity of the judgment shows us the heinousness of sin. Sin is a big deal. When we think about this terrible flood, we must not point the finger at God and say, God, you were wicked to do this. God was not wicked. He was good. We were wicked. He was doing the right thing. Mankind had done the wrong things. The flood lasted 40 days. Seven sevens. God often does things in 40 days, doesn't He, in the Bible? And the reason is that this shows that He does things thoroughly. He does them well. He does them completely. And as a side note, we, by the way, are to imitate God in that. All that we find to do with our hands, we are to do well, and we are to do thoroughly, and we are to do to His glory. But this work here is a work of judgment. And the last, let's see, Genesis 7, 21 to 24, make clear how complete this judgment was. Look, look with me again, verses 21 through 24. All flesh died. 
all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, and all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living... Do you hear how he just repeats it? (laughs) He's saying the same thing in a different way. Right? Because he wants you to get the point. The judgment was complete. He blotted out everything that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left. And those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. What are we to take from this? What are we to go home with after thinking about the flood? Well, let me close by asking you to go to 2 Peter 3. Turn with me to 2 Peter 3. Let's let Peter tell us why this account is so important to us. Look at verse 3 of chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And they will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, in the last days, and that's today, folks. We've been in the last days for 2,000 years. The last days in the Bible are the period between when Jesus went up to heaven and when He comes back again. We're in the last days. And Peter says, scoffers will come. And they'll say, why do you think He's coming back? Why do you think this day of judgment is coming? Don't you realize that this promise has been now for 2,000 years and nothing's changed? Every morning, the sun comes up. Every night, the sun goes down. It's the same day after day after day. When are you going to let go of your foolish hope? Look at Peter's answer in verse 5. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Peter's answer is the flood. They forget. Things have not always gone the same. It has not always been sun up, sun down, everything the same. There was a period of time when God broke in and changed everything. There was an old earth before the earth we're living on. It was radically different. And then look at what he says in verse 7. But by the same word, the same word that spoke the flood, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. In other words, Peter says Noah's flood is a reminder that another day of judgment is coming. Noah's flood was a pointer to this great day that will come. He said the ungodly will be destroyed. Friends, we are all ungodly. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us deserve salvation. But you do not have to perish. 
God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes on Him will not perish but have everlasting life. It's a free gift. It's totally undeserved. It just shows the great mercy of our God. Won't you turn to Jesus this morning? Acknowledge that the judgment that is coming is a judgment that you deserve. But acknowledge also that Jesus has done everything necessary to save you. Go to Jesus in prayer and throw yourself upon Him. Trust Him. Just say to the Lord, You are my only hope. I'm counting on You. And then show that you are kneeling and trusting in the Lord Jesus the same way Noah showed his faith by doing what Jesus says. Be baptized, get among His people, and let Him grow your faith and watch as you become a disciple living in the joy of the promises of God. Amen?